Hello, I am C-3PO, and I believe the storyteller is ready. So, let us begin. Diplomacy or deception? The Council of Neutral Systems speaks for over 1,500 worlds who want to stay out of the war. But rumors have reached the Republic Senate, suggesting that the Council's new leader, Duchess Satine of Mandalore, is secretly building her own army to fight for the Separatist cause. Now, Jedi Master Obi-Wan Kenobi has been sent to Mandalore to discover the truth behind these claims. So the episode starts off, Obi-Wan is investigating a plot on Mandalore. Uh, there's been some Mandalores, uh, Mandalorians uh, doing suspicious activity in the galaxy, Jango Fett uh, in particular, but also other Mandalorians. And the council needs to determine whether or not Mandalore is in league with the separatists. Uh, they're the kind of leading the uh, independent system movement. And so they don't want to be involved. Um, and when Obi-Wan arrives to investigate, he's there to meet with Duchess Satine, uh, who he has a past relationship with. Uh, there's a lot of banter back and forth. She's just insulted by the notion of being in, uh, part of the war at all, whether it's as a separatist uh, and has no interest in joining uh, his republic either. Uh, in that capacity, uh, the prime minister is also insulted by the notion of Jango Fett being considered a Mandalorian. Uh, Satine and uh, Obi-Wan go for a stroll throughout Mandalore when a bombing happens. Uh, this is from uh, Death Watch. Uh, Satine previously had dismissed the notion of Death Watch being something to really worry about and that they weren't actually doing these uh, big activities in league with separatists. Uh, but then they find out that indeed this is Death Watch who's done the bombing. They were able to pinpoint in the crowd who was responsible. Obi-Wan chases him down and he kills himself to make sure that he doesn't reveal any information. Uh, Obi-Wan and Satine then travel to the moon Concordia to investigate things a little bit further. Concordia is where Death Watch had been banished to in the previous warrior culture of Mandalore. Uh, while they're there, Obi-Wan splits off uh, to go investigate, and he has a kind of a calm link with Duchess Satine. Uh, Satine uh, goes to dinner with Pre Vizsla, who is kind of the, the leader. I forget the specific name of his of his role uh, in on Concordia. Um, but uh, governor maybe. Uh, and so in that capacity, uh, they're having dinner. Uh, they're kind of like, why isn't Obi-Wan here? Obi-Wan's investigating a factory, realizes that indeed Death Watch is building an army of Mandalorian warriors. Uh, Obi-Wan is captured uh, and then kind of signals to Satine, hey, kind of need some help here. Uh, she's able to break free from dinner. Uh, and she, when she breaks free from dinner, Pre Vizsla knows what's going on. Uh, and so she's able to rescue Obi-Wan, uh, but then Pre Vizsla meets up with them. He introduces the history of the Darksaber and the history of the warrior Mandalorian culture, stating that we're not going anywhere. We're going to take over Mandalore, basically. Uh, and then uh, Obi-Wan has a fight with Pre Vizsla, uh, and then essentially everything kind of wraps up uh, with the knowledge that there is now uh, the warrior culture of Mandalore is back and they're fighting to regain control of Mandalore uh, and Death Watch has support from the separatists uh, and are actively uh, committing terrorism and so uh, as, a mo as opposed to just being a group of hooligans as she calls them uh, this is something that is a lot more and the plot thickens so that would be I guess the, the 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 quick and dirty of the episode yeah really well done I think that this selection for an episode to recap like a, a little arc that we're going to tackle for the next couple of weeks is a is a really smart choice on your part because we've just come down off of many months of discussing Mandalorian culture in another lens. And this really colors the pre-existing context for what's canonically Mandalorian um, in that uh, they're this widespread culture and that there are other fringe groups. And, and that's a thing I think a lot of people are really having a hard time coming to terms with when they watch The Mandalorian is when they see Bo-Katan for the first time and she takes off her helmet, they're on Din's side when he says, you're not a Mandalorian, you can't be if you can take off your helmet. And I think casual fans, and I don't mean that in like a, a condescending way, I think a lot of people who haven't seen The Clone Wars are at the end of the season still not really clear on how it's possible that they can take off their helmets if they're Mandalorians. I think they're more inclined to be suspicious of that than of Din's origins, and that's problematic. And so it's really useful to have seen this episode and to see that there's so much more to it than what um, Children of the Watch uh, teach or Death Watch teaches. Um, what is the difference between those two units, by the way, as long as I'm on the subject? 
We don't know yet. Okay. Um, my belief is that it is going to be very similar to first order empire relationship. One is in in this case name uh, and metaphorically the the offspring of the other. Uh, Children of the Watch being the next generation of Death Watch going to an even higher level of even more barbaric, even more extreme uh, tendencies of the old Mandalorian way. This is the way. And so it's even taking it that extra step further of, uh, oh no, we take this uh, Mandalorian culture, this notion of being war so seriously that we are thriving with pacifism um, but we just love war so much that we'll, we'll join into the war. We can't stand being out of the war, even though that's kind of been our whole thing is that we, we don't join up with other people. Right. We, we fight, we fight in wars and we are our own side and we can hold our own. Um, but death watch doesn't even really care. It's just all about war, war, war. And then children of the watch seem to be, um, a more loyal and traditional in maybe good ways. Uh, comparatively to Death Watch, but hostile, uh, but hostile and archaic, mm-hmm. um, and so it, it's it's to be determined. It really is. We don't. They they did rescue Din. Uh, they have been our like the armorer was a good guy as all as long as far as we knew. Din is a good guy. Um, then again, we also know Din has a bit of a shady past. Uh, but then again, the rest of Children of the Watch didn't seem to like Din for the fact that he was a bounty hunter and a Mandalorian. And Bo-Katan made that very clear that that's not something that they like because the most famous Mandalorians who don't stick close to Mandalore but make a name for themselves in the rest of the galaxy do so as bounty hunters. And there's not very many of them, but they do so. And because they're Mando fighters, they build a good rep. So this is episode 12 of season two of The Clone Wars, so it's relatively early in the series. I assume this is the first time we're getting a lengthy historical background on what Mandalore is and what its people are? In canon, yes. Okay. Um, quick, quickly, I'm just trying to try and look up and see if I can find the, the order, the episode order, because that's another thing. As much as this is season two, episode 12... Uh, it does not necessarily mean it is the uh, like what the chron- chronological order is supposed to be. I see. Um, because they aired see. out of order, is that a thing with the global? Yes. That, yeah. Thank you for exp- explaining what I was trying to say. It yeah. is the that it, it actually does kind of work. Uh, if you watch them in order, it would be episode thirty-nine. Okay. Uh, and so that's that is fairly appropriate. Uh, so maybe a little bit after what it would be otherwise. Uh, but the three episodes that we're watching here are sequential regardless. And that's what we're going to be doing. So we're going to be watching um, the Mandalore plot, Voyage of Temptation and Duchess of Mandalore. And so those three will uh, are, are a three part arc and they they fit as a, as a, as a unit uh, regardless. And we're, we have selected a handful of, of units and arcs. Um, and this is going to fit well there's about three different mandalore themed arcs of three or four episodes and so this is the first of those well i wanted to ask you in particular about the duchess of mandalore because something you said in your recap throws me i've seen this episode twice now and i did not gather that this is a reunion between satine and obi-wan i thought that this was the beginning of their story together there was not really a familiarity between these two there was kind of like a a wryness between them, which you get from Obi-Wan a lot of other ways. Um, I didn't gather that there was more to their story. And so tell me a little bit about, about them and their and their relationship. Yeah, it's a very quick line that's mentioned. Uh, Satine, I think, says something along the lines of, uh, oh, I don't remember who says it, but when Obi-Wan was much younger, when they were much younger, uh, Qui-Gon and uh, Obi-Wan spent about a year as uh, Satine's protection detail. Mm. So you know how the the few days they spend working so closely with Padme and the Phantom Menace um, as kind of protection for her as two Jedi that really need to work with a politician who is at risk. They did that for an entire year with Satine when they were like 18 or 19 years old, her and Obi-Wan. Okay. And so they developed a, a relationship and Obi-Wan... Um, he is the the loyal soldier and she is the the loyal politician and neither of them compromise the way that uh anakin and padme do and so they stay on their paths um and 
there's more that will develop here, but yes, they, they have a history in that regard. And that's why there's a lot of, uh, good, a lot of Han Leia banter I find yeah, totally. uh, between the two of them. And so uh, I think it does a good job of kind of representing the passage of time, the way that the start of empire does that these two have spent more time together this, but this kind of is emphasizing these two have spent some time together in the past. By the way, it bears mentioning, and I don't think we've said this before, but, uh, Satine is a very odd name and it happens to be Nicole Kidman's character's name in Moulin Rouge, which means Ewan McGregor has had two different love interests named Satine. I had no idea. I did not know that. And I don't know if that has to be purposeful or or I, it can't be a coincidence because what does Satine mean? <laughs> it's so bizarre. Yeah. Well, it's also annoying that there is Sabine. Yeah. Are, are, they, well. are they sisters or no? No. Uh, Satine's younger sister is Bo-Katan. I was going to ask you how how they're connected. Okay. Yeah. So they're and and that and, and Bo-Katan at this point is part of Death Watch. You you don't meet her in this episode, but you will. Oh right. Uh, and so that puts them on very different sides. That also colors what we kind of sniff about uh, Bo-Katan in the season finale of of uh, Mandalorian because uh, she seems to be a little bit maybe dangerous, a little bit hostile, maybe a little bit aggressive. She is dangerous, yeah, yeah, absolutely, and especially when it comes to like the pride of her planet, and also in this case, her pride as well, which is taking a beating at times. So we open with um, a fortune cookie that says, "If you ignore the past, you jeopardize the future." Is there some kind of significance to this story? There or are these just kind of like random little uh, platitudes. These like kind of like empty fortune cookies, so to speak. No, I don't think these ever are empty. I think they also contain a bit of a picture for for what's to come as well. And I think that also comes down to the relationship that these two have had together. So I think this is a little bit layered. Uh, and this is interesting because I know what's going to happen in these next few episodes. And and you do too, kind of, but you don't really. Not really. Uh, in the sense that you know uh, some things that I've mentioned. But there will be some interesting things in these next episodes that will reveal more about the relationship that Obi-Wan and Satine had in the past uh, and about decisions that they made um, and or didn't make at that same capacity. Uh, and so I think a lot of that kind of catches up to them in this arc uh, and will in the next few arcs as well. Uh, and also in the same way that Death Watch was ignored. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the past, this Mandalore is such a warrior-based culture and how easy it is it can slip back into that. It very much goes to if you ignore history, you're doomed to repeat it. Uh, and Satine is not, she's kind of ignoring, she's willfully ignoring history. She's believing that she has almost beaten history by like, no, we are not part of wars. We are so, pa and we're, we have succeeded in our pacifism. Whereas, no, you just moved all your uh, aggressive leaders to one spot so that they could become more aggressive and build even stronger followings on Concordia. And so, it was, uh, I, th I think it's viewed in that in that kind of way. There are some that fit better than others, um, but I think this one does fit. Something I like about this show, and I think the best case for it to the hesitant fan of The Mandalorian who doesn't think that they'll they'll like The Clone Wars or, or is afraid that it's going to be for kids is that it is animated the way um, a, like a graphic novel series is animated, like an ongoing comic book arc is. And it is kind of plotted similarly too, and that it's just broken up into these little runs of mini stories that ultimately kind of flow together in that they're one existing Star Wars universe. But like we get two or three lines from Anakin at the end of this episode. He's otherwise not related to the story whatsoever. Meanwhile, we've covered on this podcast other arcs of this show that entirely revolve around Ahsoka and uh, some of the, the clone troopers, and we didn't see a single clone trooper in this episode of The Clone Wars. And so it's kind of nice that it's broken up the way it is, and I think that's going to make our further uh, analyzing it on this podcast um, really neat and a kind of a neat way to approach it in 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 blocks. I also really love that it's an essentially Obi-Wan story, which we were really robbed of entirely post-Phantom uh, Menace. And... Um, hopefully also we we yeah, I mean we have reason to believe we're going to get that on on Disney Plus coming up but this is kind of another way to ramp up to an Obi-Wan central story is to learn a little bit more about his past 
Yeah, no, that's that is a really good point. And I think that and it, it excites me that you say it that way, because there are some really great arcs that we're going to be exploring that are not consistent in the sense that I there's some that focus well on Ahsoka. There's some that and like kind of can explore her journey through about three, I'd say three different arcs and the movie, mm -hmm. I'd say are the best way to explore the, the, the Ahsoka journey through Clone Wars. And we'll, there's a great Yoda uh, arc about learning how to become a force ghost. Uh, and that's going to be incredible because it, it just died. And that's what's great about the Clone Wars. It's the sprawling saga. It is the Saturday morning cartoon as well. And so you're able to get these uh, and it's like, 1960s Batman. It's it's got all those classic tropes that, uh, like George Lucas was building this for what he would have dreamed to want to see on TV as a kid, mm -hmm. uh, because that is and he designed everything under the the, the guise of wanting to kind of reproduce uh, that kind of Flash Gordon sort of style, um, but in a, in a big cinematic way because he wanted to be able to get the budgets for it. And that's why television is always such a great fit for star Wars. And then he really kind of invented an, a lot of new technologies for animation. And he told Dave Filoni very much that, that we have to treat this like a movie in the way that we design shots and the way that we direct this series. And so that's a really important thing. And it translates so well into having Dave Filoni have that really cool direction, directing style for like his Ahsoka episode, because that had such a beautiful consistency for Star Wars in that it was so creative in its vision because he was so experienced in the animated world that he could visualize it in that kind of creative off the chart way, but then reproduce it in the volume and then do so in live action, which is just exciting for what that means for Ahsoka, which will be the force to like, it'll have a large force focus so there could be some really incredible uses of the volume. It's funny so that you, it's funny that you mentioned uh, the '60s Batman series uh, because I also thought of that in particular when we're watching the sequence where he's suspended upside down and he's on a conveyor belt, like slowly crawling towards being crushed and and doomed. Now this this reminded me of a couple of things, and I think it's uh, I have to mention also that recently on the podcast we're talking about our favorite scenes in Star Wars, and I mentioned the trash compactor sequence, and I actually made a point of saying. They don't do this enough in Star Wars. They don't do the, oh no, our heroes are are almost going to die suspense action sequence anymore. It's actually kind of false because something that uh, exists, uh, well, I mean, there's an Attack of the Clones when Padme and Anakin are in the factory oh, yeah. avoiding the all the lava spilling. That's very, um, the imagery of it is very similar to what we see here. And I haven't seen that much Clone Wars, but I kind of take it that this sort of suspense action occurs at least semi-frequently, and it is a staple of 60s Batman. That's how every part one of a Batman arc ended, was with them kind of uh, ensnared by some kind of elaborate trap that's going to slowly kill them, and then they break free at the very last minute, which is what he does here. I wanted to ask you, um, how much of a beefcake is Obi-Wan? Because we've talked so much about uh, how uh, impenetrable... Uh, uh, Beskar Steel is, and he is like dummying these Mandalorian uh, soldiers with his fists. He just like like cracks them in the heads and they go down. And I understand that he has the force, but they're like they don't appear to be quite as robust as say Din Jaren. A couple things on that. Uh, number one, Din has like a, a knight in shining armor suit of Beskar. He has thick, fresh, un destroyed Beskar. Best of the best. Now, the Death Watch, there's potential that uh, the armor could be in the generations for a little bit longer because uh, they've been part of the family for a while. And so maybe they've been held on to for a little bit longer. We know Bo-Katan's, for example, remains the same integrity and it's the same armor that she would wear part of Death Watch at this time. So it is supposed to be very, very, very similar. Mm -hmm. uh, there uh, has been a lot in Legends about uh, some Durasteel Beskar alloys that have been used so that the, the armor wasn't necessarily quite as strong. It explains uh, like Boba's dent on his in his helmet and how certain things like this uh, can contradict the way that Mandalorian armor uh, seems so impenetrable. But then at the same time, look at what happens at the end of season two. Din gets his ass almost handed to him by a dark trooper mm -hmm. barely gets out and takes the one out and then is able to vacuum the rest of the moat. 
And then Jedi Luke Skywalker has no issue with like 40 of them, if I remember correctly, or 30, whatever it was, 40, I think. Right. And Obi-Wan's Obi-Wan, a Jedi. Yeah. Obi-Wan's a Jedi and a general, yeah. a war general, and he's wearing armor. So it's shitty armor. It's stormtrooper armor, basically. It's uh, proto stormtrooper, like chest plate and crap. But he's he's at he is in prime physical ass kicking mode, and just so happens to be, you know, the only Jedi to kill a Sith in a thousand years. So <laughs> that's true. nothing major. So a beefcake uh, he is. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, that's a good point. Um, but. Then there's also going to be the the sad realization um, in a couple arcs that that's not so much the case. Hmm. Um, Maul's still here. Oh, right, right, right. So that's going to be really fun because Maul does intertwine with these Mandalorian arcs here. And so the three uh, arcs of um, that make up these kind of like nine episodes about Mandalorian Clone Wars uh, has a lot of Maul Obi-Wan in it as well. And so there's great focus on building that out too. And more reason as to why... Uh, anyone a while back who was saying Maul should have been in the Obi-Wan show was crazy uh, on top of the Rebels stuff. Uh, and then now I think everybody's forgotten about that because it's confirmed that it will be Vader and not Maul. And that's the way it should be. All the Mandalorians we see in this episode have uh, exactly the same armor and it looks really exactly like Jango Fett's armor. Is this before they have decided canonically that there can be variations on what that looks like? Because now we see there's all these different styles of helmets that like have kind of a similar, a, a, a sort of a similar style, but these ones are all identical. And I wondered if you know why that is. Uh, in this instance, it's it's just because they're the kind of the early militia of uh, Death Watch picking up steam again. Right. Uh, and so they're... I forget how it works. There's like commando mandos and other types. Like there's all these different like classic mando, uh, sniper man. Like so, there's all different configurations of mandos. Um, like Din has a clear distinction in the style of his armor that's different from Boba Fett, mm. and that's different from uh, Jango Fett slightly. And that's uh, Jango Fett's is very similar to Death Watch, but all of it's very different from uh, when Maul takes over and. Uh, uh, the armorer is has remnants of she has horns in her helmet. So I've always stated that I believe that she was a mall follower, or at least her family were, which makes her likely to be the bad guy in in, in the big picture, uh, and likely in line with Death Watch. But we'll get down those roads later on. Uh, so no, I, I this is uh, there are characters in this episode like Prime Minister Almec, for example. Uh, he has Mando armor. He's not wearing it in this episode, uh, but his Mando armor is super regal and awesome it's green and really cool looking doesn't he turn out to be not such a good guy in the final arc of the show um i'm not sure if it's he definitely does but i'm just trying to remember whether it's revealed in the final arc or before the final arc well i I remember seeing it i and so i yeah, yeah he's a bad dude yeah for sure Okay, and I found it interesting, actually, when uh, Jango Fett is briefly mentioned, because that Obi-Wan is like, I've only ever seen uh, Mandalorian armor on one guy, and his name was Jango Fett. Or I saw him recently, I guess he says. And uh, the Prime Minister is like, well, Jango Fett's not a Mandalorian. God only knows how he got the armor. And it's interesting now that we have a different coloration for that for that character's history. Yeah, no, that was one of the most well-talked-about lines. We talked about it when, uh, episode, when the tragedy happened, uh, yeah. the, the episode The Tragedy. And it's... Uh, it makes sense, especially seeing as Almec is uh, an elitist, and that would be fitting for someone like him to say, oh, no, he's not a Mandalorian. Well, he's born in Mandalorian space, and he was raised in Mandalorian values. And he wears the armor. Um, he just doesn't follow, follow your little rules. He's kind yeah, of a, and he oh. wasn't born in the capital. Right. Let's do a little bit of trivia before we spoil any more stuff. Uh, a Padawan question for you along the same themes uh, that we're talking about right now. How did the Mandalorians first come into possession of the Darksaber? Uh, they stole it from the Jedi. Well, that is what's listed uh, in the episode. They say they stole it back from the Jedi Temple. They stole it from the Jedi Temple. But the the true answer is the the first uh, Mandalorian Jedi was Tar Vizsla, mm. and this is explained a little bit later in Rebels. And Tar Vizsla was the first Mandalorian Jedi, and that was his lightsaber. Uh, he, the Jedi, because he was a Jedi, the Jedi kept the lightsaber and kept it at the temple as part of like the the shrine to all jedi masters who serves like almost like the jedi cemetery uh and then mandalorians stole it back because it was like no he was our coolest mando 
just because he was one of you guys. And so then they had they kept it as more of a like a, a symbolic leadership token. And so uh, stolen from the Jedi Temple, I'm assuming is the answer because canonically at this in this episode is is what Previsla says. That's what I'm looking for. It was such a treat to get to see that. I had no idea that we were going to see the dark saber in this episode. Yeah, that's uh, that is the introduction of the dark saber. So does it is it imbued with any other powers or is it just a lightsaber that looks funny? Uh, we we don't know. Um, I believe it is a lightsaber that looks funny. And uh, the kyber crystal, uh, maybe it isn't a kyber crystal. Uh, no, it is a kyber crystal. Kanan talks about it being a kyber crystal in Rebels. Um, but it connects in... It's, it's, a, it's a unique kyber crystal. It has to be because it made uh, a unique looking blade. Right. And uh, it's, a, yeah, it's a bloody cool lightsaber. Uh, this is a, a very easy Padawan question, uh, but you, you might not know it. Um, but who voices Pre Vizsla? Oh, that was John Favreau. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was very obviously John Favreau. It was like sometimes these voices are a little bit more disguised, but uh, it was very clear. It, it was sounded like John Favreau, and it looked a lot like Jude Law, circa two thousand three. Well, yeah, Mandos are supposed to uh, look Scandinavian. Oh, okay. Why, another reason as to why uh, Almec is a racist because the Fets are. Maori. Right. Right. Interesting. Okay. Well, this is a, a good uh, lead into my next question. Uh, name every character in Star Wars voiced by Jon Favreau. Oh, wow. Well, there's Pre Vizsla, Rio. Crap. What's the other Vizsla's name? Um, Heavy Infantry Mando. That's always what I call him. Yeah. That, that is um, what you always call him. <laughs> Crap, I forget what the Mando's name is. Um, what is it? I don't know. I don't have it written here. Did I was you just have Heavy Infantry Mando? No, I was going to take your word for it. Oh, <laughs> crap. Um, yeah, John Favreau might have voiced a couple other characters, but yeah, those are the main ones that, that I know of. Again, be I know we keep talking about the Mandalorian, but like it was neat that he turned up in this because this episode so tidily comes back to the show that uh, the larger fan base is aware of. And so this episode, like, I really encourage anybody who enjoyed The Mandalorian and has never seen The Clone Wars to to pull up Disney Plus and watch episode uh, 2.12 because it really is a great partner for that show that we're getting to know better. And uh, John Favreau yeah. being in it is just like a nice Easter egg. Paz Vizsla. Okay. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Okay. Yeah, that, well, this is his introduction that way, which is, which is great. That was my master question, so I'll, I'll save my other one until uh, I guess it's your turn to quiz me. All right, how many worlds are part of the Council of Neutral Systems? Oh, did they say that? I don't know. Yeah, they did. I don't know. I think they said I think they said it in the um the opening 1500 worlds yeah. part of the new Council of Neutral Systems. Ah, I didn't retain. Yeah, so it's over 1500. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, I think you'll get this one. I think maybe you've told me this one before. The physicality of Duchess Satine Kreese is based on what famous actress? Kate Blanchett. Yeah, and she does look like Kate Blanchett. Maybe she's named after Moulin Rouge, or <laughs> I don't really know, but it seems it seems too solid a coincidence otherwise. Yeah, it looks exactly like Kate Blanchett. Yeah, yeah the, it does. Yeah. The vocal performance even mirrors her mid-Atlantic accent as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Kate Blanchett being one of the only modern-day actors with like a mid-Atlantic accent, but also an insanely good actor. R.I.P. Christopher Plummer, by the way, one of the all-time great mid-Atlantic accents. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, okay, that's all I got for for trivia for you. Icon. Uh, what type of vehicle do Obi Wan and Satine use to investigate Concordia? I don't know, but I liked that ship. I thought it was cool. Uh, the ship, or yeah, I thought they like they take a ship to the to the moon. That's not what you're talking about. I, I wasn't talking about that. I'm assuming it, they were took a they probably took a Mando gauntlet. Um, maybe so and by the way uh, I really like the look of Concordia from space the color palette like this like off pink and green really pretty yeah. looking yeah it, it's it's not consistent though so oh. the clouds the clouds must be uh, kind of like cool yeah but it, yeah it's not consistent with how the ground looks and so that's no that would be no nice. that's kind of true but I just like the look of it I thought it was pretty yeah I was referring to a, a balloter class swoop bike always okay. cool to see the swoop bikes um, the ones that they were, I was referring to when they were investigating around Concordia. Oh, sure. They were traveling okay. there. I, but yeah, I, I assume they took a gauntlet there. It, maybe they didn't, but uh, 
Mando gauntlets are their kind of their starfighters, and we did get to see those parked in uh, the final episode of Mando season two. Right. When Bo and Costco were having drinks at the bar, they had their gauntlet outside. Um, I don't really have a whole lot of quotes saved from this episode. There was a couple of like nice lines that stand on their own, but most of it was like good dialogue, but most of it was just like um, kind of like rigid, well-crafted dialogue that wasn't quite as zippy. One line I liked is... Um, is it reality that makes a Jedi abandon his ideals or is it simply a response to political convenience? That's kind of her uh, judging his, she's calling it hypocrisy, his Jedi ways with the fact that mm. he's involved with like kind of violent endeavors. Um, this is really one of the only references to his being a Jedi. Otherwise, he's really just a servant of uh, the Republic in this episode. Yeah, and that's kind of what she's given him shit for. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that entire exchange is good. Uh, a peacekeeper belongs in the front lines of conflicts. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to do his job. The work of a peacekeeper is to make sure that conflict does not arise. Yes, a noble description, but not a realistic one. Mm -hmm. That's um, nice. Previsla says to Satine, take it as a compliment. Someone very powerful is working towards your downfall. I thought that was very menacing. It was. Uh, another one of his lines was, this lightsaber was stolen from your Jedi temple by my ancestors during the fall of the Old Republic. Since then, Medi Jedi have died upon its blade. Prepare yourself to join them. Oh, yeah. Very, very Inigo Montoya. Very, kind of. very swashbuckling Saturday morning cartoon line. It's but great. But evil, and but very evil. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the evil variation of so. Uh, uh, the two you know, I haven't... Go ahead. You know, I haven't saved you yet. Yes, no need to remind me of that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, he has a really awkward moment, actually, there when he's suspended upside down. He, he just says something like, this isn't good. And it's just kind of classic Star Wars, um, sarcastic uh, dryness. But it's it's not quite as, uh, as catchy as, I've got a bad feeling about this. <laughs> it's yeah. just kind of like a, a throwaway line. Yeah, there's definitely some of those. And kind of done in, in fun ways towards the end of the uh, episode yeah Satine and and, and Obi-Wan have rescued each other and she says something like um uh well now we're even and, and he I says suppose we're even now yeah and and he and he said I think it's him who says yes well mine was the more daring of the two rescues very yeah. competitive yeah I was, I was ready to say that one yeah. as well and like you said very Han and Leia yeah it works really quite well um please not to try please try not to cause problems where none yet exist Think of me as searching for solutions. I have to tell you, I'm opposed to all of this. I'd be disappointed if you weren't. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. And the whole is the whole show written with this like really like like posh, uh, lofty, almost overwrought language and dialogue. It seems like it is to kind of mimic the prequels. Uh, yes and no. So uh, Obi Wan, yes. Uh, Satine, yes. Anakin, no. Ahsoka, no. There is a very clear, uh, Anakin was told uh, to be played American. They told Matt Lanter, we're, we're switching it up. Anakin's not going to be mid-Atlantic. He's going to be American mm -hmm. in the show. Yeah. And so we want a, we want a combination of Anakin, Luke, and Han. Uh, and that's what we want our, which we want to present as Anakin in this. Whereas um, I think James Arnold Taylor does a really good job of blending Alec Guinness and, but really kind of really focusing on the Ewan McGregor Obi-Wan, but in doing so is going to sound very posh. Um, I, I think that just overall, um, I, I, I think it's very character dependent and arc dependent, um, but obviously keeping the characters consistent. In this this well. Obi-Wan, James Arnold Taylor, who does Obi-Wan, phenomenal yeah, vocal impression. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, you completely feel uh at home with the character yeah absolutely yeah. he's uh it, it is it can part an impression and also just an excellent performance in its own right and, that's right uh, i think you'll grow to appreciate it even more over these next uh, coming episodes this mini arc is good uh but i'd say it's easily easily the the least interesting of all of the arcs i'm going to show you um, and so that's, a, if you enjoyed this at all, then I think we're onto a good start. I did very much. Is there anything else you wanted to say about it? Anything that is worth noting? Um, just maybe a couple of the, the highlights and lowlights. Um, Obi-Wan should have stopped the Mando from killing himself by using the force. Yeah. I thought he that just, I thought that too, there was him. a fair amount of suicide in this episode. Cause this is like, he's already said that I know of another guy who took his own life while we were trying to get information out of him. And then it happens again in front of us. Mm. 
Uh, the art on the collarbones, like, so the art even develops quite a bit more from this, I'd say by season, we get season three or four, they do a bit of an art and design update. Mm -hmm. And, but the collarbones in this point, they're a little pronounced and some of the artwork here, uh, it's just, it's a little rigid looking, but it grows to be in incredible. And I'm so excited for that with Bad Batch. Um, and uh, some of the big highlights, uh, seeing Sundari from the outside, um, it'll be very cool to see that dome flattened, uh, likely in Mando. Uh, we've seen in Rebels, just pretty much wasteland, but it wouldn't surprise me if we went back to Sundari. Maybe it's a military base now. Um, who knows? But that uh, we're likely going to go back to the capital in some capacity. Right. Uh, and just overall, it was uh, it, it was just a, a cool episode for showing some great exposition on Mando uh, and their culture and just learning about it, uh, getting a little bit of uh, uh, all the elements of Star Wars, some ro rom romance and some awesome uh, action scenes as well. So uh, it's a nice little... Uh, 20 minute wrapped up in a bow, but also uh, will blend well with the next few episodes. I thought so too. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and, and I guess I have enjoyed most of the Clone Wars I've seen so far. So well chosen. Next week, we'll do 213. Sure. Yep. 213. Then we'll do 214. And then we can take a break and do some of the, the six and sixes for a little while. And then uh, we can either do the, the rest of this big arc and do the, all the nine Mando episodes or switch it up a little bit and do some of the other ones. We'll, uh, we'll play it by ear. What, uh, What's going on in the news in the world of Star Wars? We haven't had a pod in a couple of weeks. Yeah, there is some stuff in the news. Uh, let's start off with uh, the the video game world. And so it does look like Knights of the Old Republic 1 and 2 are going to be getting redone, readapted, remade, um, but completely modernized in a new way. So this is rumor, but a heavy rumor. It looks like the company Aspire is hiring old Bioware employees, the ones who worked on developing those projects, and that there's a rumored uh, like near 100 million or 70 to $100 million budget on this project. And so it's there's a lot of rumors about it. And so when there's smoke, there's fire, and there's been a lot of smoke on a lot of these other things in the past, but this one seems to have, you could just kind of gauge by where the smoke's coming from and how much there is and the variety and whether or not you do like source tracing on some of these, like, okay, where did you go back and find it? If you find a lot of original sources, it just seems to be likely. And this is one of those ones. It's one of those rumors that just seems very likely. So that is insanely cool. Yeah. Uh, that there's going to be an open world game by Ubisoft and potentially a KOTOR game coming back. Uh, there's also a shooter game that looks to be in works. Uh, and this is not uh, Battlefront, so it could be another one. Uh, and this is being built on uh, the Fallen Order engine. And so that's interesting. Uh, it would be potentially like a similar size game to the Star Wars Squadrons game that was released this year. And so my guess is it'll be like, I don't know, similar to Battlefront, maybe like a, like a Call of Duty style. But for Star Wars, I'm not, I'm not really sure. Uh, but that seems interesting. Battlefront has a lot of those kind of main characters. So maybe this will be, maybe it'll be, a, you know what? It very, very, very well could be a Clone Wars game. Yeah, it very well could be you are a clone and you're like customizing your clone armor and your paint and and that'll get a huge, huge fan base already from the get go. I just kind of thought of that right now. But actually, now that it, I bet you it is a clone game. And they have done that before, right? The Call of Duty type games where it's essentially a storybook game, but it's war based and it's gritty and it's Star Wars. Yeah, I was referring to more in the sense that the focus would be um probably more on the online aspect right. the same way that that squadrons was there probably will be a small story same way battlefront was but battlefront also has some focus on like you get the the hero characters whereas you can play like i guess if you get a bunch of points you play as darth vader then and you're more powerful my guess is this would be more era specific and the same way that squadrons is specific to um like kind of that that time period for uh, empire like and rebels post or new republic post uh, fall of uh, the empire. So I think that's good. That's, that's cool. But it's also interesting to see that as soon as they kind of decided they were going to have their, their back off from the exclusivity with EA, the, the floodgates seem to be opening up. So that's really exciting. It was worth the wait, but I really wish that, yeah, I really hope that this is what we're hoping for because it definitely seems like video games are the last frontier for star Wars. Yeah, it definitely seems to be the forgotten area yeah. and now realizing, oh, you know, we could just make billions of dollars if we want. Yeah. <laughs> because the IP is so strong and video games are a medium that is 
blowing past film. I think <laughs> I their mean, concern the is that the market. I think their concern is that they're not as eternal as film. Uh, like they do age on only once in a generation is there a game that kind of transcends beyond its uh battlefront 2 i think is an example of one maybe. that was so garbage from the at the beginning that nobody had any expectations for it but people who do play it say it's great and they've yeah. only done a good job and the the updates that they've done the rise of skywalker update they've all been incredible apparently mm -hmm. and so it's not my cup of tea game but a game can live for for five years if you're smart about it it's just they haven't been smart about the start of any of their games and even jedi fallen order um that one hasn't had a huge life span with it but i also don't think it was necessarily uh the most strategic first game it was great and it worked it was a huge hit for them and i was proven wrong in that regard but i would have expected the this open world game that they're doing with ubisoft something along those lines would have been a more logical step before fallen order in my opinion but right potato potato it looks like the floodgates are open now yes uh lucasfilm has hired uh momita singupta as vice president of physical production uh so she was hired away from netflix so this is just meaning that they've got somebody else with a lot of experience uh on their production team and that's a good thing uh likely has built up some strong relationships with people who have worked on netflix projects and they likely wanted somebody who was able to facilitate um, probably projects on a ridiculous timeline because that's what Netflix does. Uh, and so this is a win. Uh, she, I think, has experience prior to Netflix as well. So good okay. executive hire. Not much else to say on that. No, that's good, though. Building the dream yep. team. Yeah, that's exactly what you got to do. Yep. Um, and... Uh, there's also a Life Day kind of book, which is kind of cool. It's a Life Day treasury. So it's stories, holiday stories from a galaxy far, far away. Uh, in part of the pitch deck for this, there was a picture of Ewoks in the snow. And apparently okay. that was the thing that was the slam dunk that got this thing approved <laughs> uh, because it was just so cute. And so the notion of being able to kind of tell some stories around holidays and the importance of holiday in the galaxy in the far, far away. That's so sweet. Stories, I love that. Uh, yeah, I think this is a great idea. The way that they've done these kind of like intercut stories uh, with a topic on them, but this one being holiday-based, I think it's awesome because it's likely going to be focusing on a lot of different types of holidays and the ways different species celebrate too. Well, and interestingly, like faith and spirituality are like a big role in Star Wars beyond just the Jedi. Like it's a huge part of almost every character comes from some kind of creed. But very seldom is the joy and tradition of the creed explored. It's really just like, what do we stand for? And it's kind of nice that we we have an opportunity to explore the happy stuff too. Absolutely. And that's one thing that's great about the High Republic. Although the High Republic, I'm not, I'm still not done in the light of the Jedi yet, although it's, I'm, I'm making my way through it and it's so, so damn good. Um, it is kind of writing the the fall of the Jedi, but the Jedi are still at their high at this point. Right. And so that's, you do get to kind of see some success of, of the creed and some of the benefits behind it as opposed to just the, the, the Mace Windu downside. So. Cool. Uh, a lot of other stuff kind of in, in the TV area uh, and or. So uh, I didn't bring this up for a while because I was pretty confident this was the case. And it was the case that uh, there's been complaints about uh this big set being built and they were saying that it was the Obi-Wan show. Uh, I thought it was Andor show. It's indeed the Andor show. So Andor is filming in London because Obi-Wan was confirmed to be doing all of its filming in California. And all the reports have been about Andor that people have confused as Obi-Wan. Uh, it's being shot all on the volume um, and it has not started to film yet. This is just so, a classic case of people not really knowing that Andor exists. They know the, exactly. they know the Obi-Wan show is happening, but the greater public doesn't even know what Andor is. Exactly. And so Andor uh, is moving along quite well. Uh, Toby Haynes, who's been mentioned before as a director, he did Sherlock, Black Mirror, and a few other things. Um, in addition, Ben Karen, who or Caron, who has done a bunch of episodes of The Crown, as well as he did uh, Sherlock as well. And Susanna White, who did Jane Eyre, The Deuce, Billions, Generation Kill, um, and a few other projects as well. Um, a lot of other modern projects. So just kind of building out a team of other directors to kind of dip their feet in. So that's encouraging. I would, I'm, I'm a little worried about there being too many leadership directions. Like Henry Gilroy is the leader on this project, but 
well, I'm curious about his level of oversight. Now I know that Favreau Filoni worked yep. on Mando, but that is will not work across the board. No, and not every time. Favreau Filoni, like they should have a hand in everything a little bit. I mean, they don't need to have any. They need to be able to make sure that this is going to to work. And I think that it's great that they're bringing in these other directors. And Tony Gilroy has worked on Star Wars before, so that helps. But I, it would be nicer to have the proving ground be Mando more so than or shows that have a, a more proven oversight. Yep. Tony Gilroy is not somebody who I want providing oversight on other people. Tony Gilroy has done a phenomenal job of um, everything that he directly has a hand in. He's not a Star Wars he was, fan. He's not a Star Wars fan. He was the fixer on Rogue One. Yeah. Gareth Edwards was the Star Wars fan and provided him all the content that he could fix. There does need and to so, be one resident uh, uh, creative authority at Star Wars. and I mean, it ought to be Dave Filoni. I know he's got his hands full, yeah. but there needs to be somebody who can say yes, no to literally every question. Yeah, and I, I'm okay with it being uh, Favreau and Filoni. I think there's there's no they work so well together that I think you can do a duo because one has such a different skill set from the other and they respect the other skill sets so well and it's proven that they can work that I think a duo could work. Uh, but you're right, when it comes to creative authority, Dave Filoni, uh, I'm, 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 I'm sure has seen the scripts or whatnot, uh, but it's just, it seems like it's a lot of, like there's, I don't see any reason why you can't have uh, Rick Famuyiwa be thrown into that group because he knows it so well, yeah. or why you can't have um, ooh, Peyton Reed mm -hmm. uh, go in there, or just even just one person who has done, uh, who has been part of something a little bit closer, and maybe they do that just hasn't been announced, or maybe it's somebody who's a little bit more of a behind the scenes, less known name, uh, but that it provides that good channel. So I'm not going to assume the worst by any means. Uh, there is consistency, likely, that they're following the previous stories because further confirmation that Alan Tudyk is, will be back in the story maybe at some point, but that he's not in this early... Or it's really confusing. Is it 12 episodes total or 12 episodes for the season? We don't know. So if we find out this season is, not, is like four or six episodes, well, then we know <laughs> Alan Tudyk will be in a different season. Yeah. But if this is a 12-episode first season... Is it like, is there potential for another season after this that they just haven't determined yet? Or what's the deal? So this Alan Tudyk thing is a big question mark because he was confirmed before there was a confirmed script. Right. And now he's not in it. So it's interesting to see where in, in the timeline this is going to fit and how they may introduce K2 and whether it'll be consistent with the comics. 12 is long. That's a long season nowadays. It is, and so maybe it is two ep two six episode seasons, or maybe three four episode seasons. Mm. That'd be great. Who knows? No issue with that whatsoever. Yeah, me too. I actually would prefer that because that means we would get K two at some point. Right. Uh, Obi Wan. One other thing on that would be uh, that they have hired their cinematographer uh, Chung Hoon Chung, uh, and he did the Handmaiden, Old Boy, uh, Hotel Artemis, Zombieland, Double Tap, and uh, the upcoming Edward Wright movie Last Night in Soho. Uh, as well as uh, the upcoming movie, the Uncharted movie. So someone who has a lot of experience and is an award-winning cinematographer. And uh, I just looked up a couple shots just to get a kind of a, a vibe. And yeah, he's got a really cool style. So Because uh, I don't really know those projects that well, but I know of them. Uh, and so I think, I think this could work. I think this could be really cool. Cool. Uh, Bad Batch, uh, confirmation pretty much that it's going to be coming in spring. Uh, it's heavily rumored and by a lot of reliable sources. Spring isn't that clear, but may the 4th be with us probably. And that wouldn't be my, that would be my guess uh, or some form of May anniversary. There are so many May anniversaries for Star Wars that you could throw it on any of those as well and it would work fine. So my guess is May for the Bad Batch, so that'll be exciting. Uh, and Mando season three, it's looking like there's going to be an April film that start. Uh, so it's not going to start filming until April, which means probably April, May, June, 2022 is when we'll be getting it, which is maybe a little later than uh, hopefully April. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, they can turn but, around a season in a year. They've done it before less than a year. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, so yeah, maybe it'll be yeah. March. Who knows? Yeah. That would be, that would be great. That would be uh, Mando also, uh, for the writer's guild, uh, 
uh, Writers Guild Award, Writers Guild of America Awards, uh, got Best Drama nomination, uh, got uh, Best Drama nomination at the Golden Globes, uh, got Best Ensemble nomination for SAG. And so it's uh, getting some good props from the, the film community uh, and uh, kind of the, the TV community. So that's that's very encouraging for Star Wars projects in general, uh, in the same way that they're kind of aligned with comic books and maybe don't get their due the way that they should be. Uh, and I think Star Wars, I think Mandalorian is a great example of a project that uh, like best ensemble. That's I don't know what the other options are, but I don't see any reason why it couldn't be an extremely deserving candidate for something like that. I mean, especially when you've got uh, like five people playing like this little this little green guy. Right. Well, uh, going beyond the original Star Wars movie, which did win a handful of Academy Awards and it, and it deserved to because it was um, revolutionary. Mm. It has won the occasional uh, below the line, like a technical award. Uh, also, you know, deservedly so in, in its in its 40 some years. Um, but I think probably with the inaugural live action TV series, Somebody at the helm is going, look, Game of Thrones is winning or at least getting nominated for everything. There's no reason we can't do that, too. And I, I think it's kind of perfectly acceptable that they're chasing after this stuff. They are the king of popular culture. They might as well get the trophies to prove it. Yeah, I did want to check, and I, I thought that was the case. No, Return of the Jedi was the last one to win an Oscar. Is that right? Um, yeah. Yeah. So this is the last one to win an Oscar. Um, but they have. But see, they get nominated for like for, for oh, yeah. sound mixing and, and things like that. Pretty regularly. Yeah. Grammy. Uh, it, got, it won a Grammy for The Force Awakens. That's cool. Um, and it won a BAFTA for The Force Awakens. And uh, let's see. Some Saturn Awards as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, otherwise, in the, the news, there is uh, nothing. Okay. <laughs> nothing really uh, else in the news. Uh, just that I'm continuing to read Light of the Jedi. Uh, and that the, the Nile, who are the, uh, the Nihil, who are the, the kind of Viking-style bad guys, are extremely cool. A yeah. lot cooler than I thought. They are evil, evil marauders. And uh, they're... It, there's just they're a they're a very interesting foe for the Jedi, uh, and uh, the galaxy is being explored in a really cool way. The relationship characters have with the Force, uh, some of the relationships they have with attachment is interesting, and uh, there is also uh, the the Santecas uh, are playing a big role in the in the time period. I'm into that. And I like so, the Santecas. Yeah, there. Uh, there's definitely some some big spoiler things around that that could be very interesting that I can chat with you about. But uh, that it's very very cool, uh, kind of the way that the galaxy's broadening out, but connecting all the same. Cool. Well, I want to wish a couple of happy birthdays. Pretty big happy birthday week uh, on Monday, February eighth. A happy birthday to Nick Nolte, who we're unlikely to see again, but he was kind of a scene stealer in season one, Mando. Um, on Tuesday the ninth, John Williams. Uh, which is the day we're recording this. And it's notable that Mark Hamill tweeted a happy birthday to John Williams saying that aside from George Lucas, there's nobody who did more to contribute to the success of Star Wars than John Williams, which I think is accurate. I think that's an accurate assessment. Happy birthday on Wednesday the 10th to Laura Dern and on Saturday the 13th to Pernilla August, who plays Shmi Skywalker in Shmi. The Phantom Menace. Um, listen, if you want to be caught up to our podcast by next week, watch episodes 212 and 213 of The Clone Wars. Uh, you can find it on Disney+. Plus. Um, in the meantime, if you have any thoughts on this uh, podcast or any questions, you can always tweet us at Recorder66 or email Recorder66podcast at gmail.com. Rate and review on your preferred podcast app, which may or may not include Spotify at this point. What's the status of that? Uh, not quite, or maybe yet. We'll have to wait and see. You and I, actually, we should just talk briefly about that after this, uh, just because okay. there's one other thing I think we need to do. But yeah, we're switching over to Anchor so that we can have access to Spotify and all of the, the podcasting platforms uh, so that we can uh, just chat with more people. It shouldn't affect your feed as it is now, but uh, currently we're definitely accessible on iTunes and Google Play Music, as well as we have a YouTube channel, so you can find us there. And uh, until we are together again, may the force be with you. Yeah.